Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reinsurance Podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm the other co-host. <laughs> Long may this survive, Ben Rose. <laughs> Good to see you, sir. Um, and you too. Today, we've, we've done our, our monthly sort of wrap-up of the news, but one of the things we didn't touch on was M&A the big sort of mergers in this sort of last month. But I thought it'd be fun for us to dive into one of the things that makes this industry exciting and great, which is massive, massive mergers and acquisitions. And if you didn't put the two and two together, one and two together, M and A together, M and A stands for mergers and acquisitions. That's right, folks. I, I'm pretty sure you all already knew that, but just wanted to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, and speaking of acquisitions, You've got a brand new shirt. I have. <laughs> Which, if you don't, if you don't follow us on either YouTube or on LinkedIn, you don't get to witness the beauty of of ben, Ben's wardrobe choices at times. So here we are with. I assume this is, this is your post acquisition shirt where you're just exactly. beach vibing it. This is my exit shirt. This is a, <laughs> right after you've sold a company. Yeah. This is the kind of shirt you would wear. Yeah. I imagine as yeah. you retreat into exotic. Yeah. Passages should have suntan lotion on your nose. And... I should, <laughs> but anyway, mergers and acquisitions very exciting topic in our mm -hmm. space, and also a far-reaching one because it's it's always happening. Yeah, sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes in insurer and reinsurer landscapes. Sometimes in broker landscapes. Sometimes sometimes they do rogue things like acquire other players like tech companies which by the way we have some new no we don't i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> always independent um the uh, but the whole space is is obviously you know headline grabbing every time somebody buys someone else yeah um where should we start i th i think we should start at the beginning no but Ooh. what i mean by at the beginning <laughs> that's profound that's like <laughs> at the beginning but the, the reason i i said that is so much of the industry is rooted in M&A. Mm -hmm. When you look at <clears throat> many of the biggest firms now, they've accumulated, like very few firms have built a global footprint organically. They've grown to be a decent sized broker in this state and they've bought another broker in a neighboring state or they wanted to go to a new country. So they bought one of the medium sized brokers to give them a foothold there. Like in reinsurance, I think more than any other insurance related sector not you don't see it in the insurers as much because of licensings and things but within reinsurance the reinsurance brokers and the reinsurers themselves this concept of growth via this channel of acquisition or via this merger opportunity is sort of fundamental to most of the big brands that we have in this industry so you know you look back and there's this goes back decades and decades and decades but um Pat Ryan and sort of Aon in that growth acquired like hundreds, 170 or something, like some sort of absurd number. Again, fact check me on, on, on this <laughs> later. Um, but huge number of companies as they grew that business out, and he's doing something similar now with Ryan Specialty, sort of repeating that model. We oftentimes think about this from the mega mergers, you know, Aon and Benfield or Willis Towers Watson and Gallagher or Aon attempt. And then you have the Gallagher, um, Willis Ree, you have um, uh, GC and JLT. You see so that sort of, those are the headline grabbers normally, but the number of times that Aon or GC like swooped up the, the biggest broker in Turkey or whatever it might be, right? It's, mm. that is always happening. 
and and I think on the underwriting side as well, right? Mm. You've seen, and I, I think in both the broking and the underwriting space, a lot of this acquisition, I thesis has revolved around access mm -hmm. to business mostly. So it's, it's been a way of avoiding barriers to entry or overcoming them. You, you acquire an existing entity that's already got the regulatory setup in a space. They've already got the access to customers and to partners. Uh, and you just want to pump money and resource into that existing play. Lloyd's, a massively common option there. We used to have a rule that only Lloyd's brokers could break to Lloyd's syndicates. So huge American broking firms bought small local Lloyd's brokers in order to get access to the capacity that sat at Lloyd's without having to pay a local wholesale broker to sort of do it for them. Yeah. And then similarly as well, the underwriters we've seen over time really keen, uh, some of these massive firms, you know, to set up a Lloyd syndicate or to buy an existing Lloyd syndicate yeah. and then, you know, align their capacity from a group, whether that's like a, a Munich Re or a, a Berkshire Hathaway, you know, some of these Titanic firms or even most recently, you know, AXA, for example, where they staged a very controversial at the time acquisition of buying Lloyd's largest syndicate, XL Catlin, which itself had just been the <laughs> the result of XL buying into Lloyd's when XL acquired Catlin. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think most commonly you see, as, as you said in our industry, that uh, acquisitions are a tool for growth. Yep. Well, and, and you pointed out the access piece as well. When, when you think about it, as a regulated industry, it's incredibly expensive to set up a new operation in a new country and get the local licenses and all those things. And, and actually buying even a small player is a far more cost-effective way of doing that than going to the local authorities, applying for your licenses, prove, like doing all the paperwork, setting up an entity, capitalizing that entity. All of that is so, so tedious. You, you're even seeing times... Um, a lot of startups in the U.S. are doing this when you look at um, sort of the full stack startups, a Kin, a Lemonade, a Metro Mile or similar. They're actually acquiring like defunct shell company insurers that have, are, have gone mm -hmm. out of business, but they still have a license to write homeowners in Arizona. And so that company doesn't exist by, besides on paper. They have no clients. They have no premium. But it allows an a, a startup insurer to go, we can buy them for pennies on the mm -hmm. dollar and at least have an, a license now to do business. We'll just flip it. We'll write that business on behalf of that company in that geography. And the same thing happens in, in new regions or if you want to get access to Lloyd's. It's like, I don't need the biggest Lloyd syndicate sometimes. I just want to be able to write from there. So who is someone who I can just sort of buy because out of the box I get a license, a Lloyd's approval, I get all of these things that are going to take me months and huge amounts of legal fees and everything else to get. So it, it's, I think that's one of the drivers that, that you see. Absolutely. And I think the, the common pattern here does tend to be a resource acquisition. So if you look at some of the old school theory, for those of you who like your strategy theory, you know, you look at the main resources or the main, the main factors that make up a company's capabilities. You know, you have their value proposition, like what they offer to customers that's distinctive. You have their profit model, how they make money. You have the resources, which is all the employees and the customers and the assets that they actually use. And then you have the processes that they use by which to convert all that stuff into 
their profit model and their value proposition. And pretty much exclusively in our industry, we see resource-based acquisitions. Mm. They're not changing the value proposition very much at all. They're not changing the uh, profit model. Again, it's like they're still going to charge that same rate that they charge always. They're still, you know, for brokers, it's a, a consistent commission. For underwriters, they're still going to be another underwriter on the slip mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And they're not changing the processes. They're carrying on doing things the way they were before. I, it tends to be what I think is is called a, a sort of leveraged my existing business model or leveraged my business model approach mm-hmm. to an acquisition where you add their resources, trim any fat that you didn't need as part of that, and hope that it will lead to either a more premium market position or alternatively, uh, as we discussed, a sort of growth gain or efficiency. And I think our industry historically hasn't really given a damn about efficiency, <laughs> which is one of the really interesting things here, you know, because most most other industries, it's been a cosplay, you know, economies of scale, massive fixed costs enable us to say, you know, we... We used to have to be two separate companies that had a factory each with identical machinery. Now we can close down their factories, take all their customers and their top patents and things and build everything in one big factory. Or we can you know, deliver to twice as many customers but use our existing fleet of lorries that were half capacity. Yeah. That's not happening in our industry, right? <laughs> you, you get some points where it's like, we maybe you know we we don't have to have as many claims people or something because the claims team were under capacity anyway. But it's like no, we we every extra deal comes with an extra broker or underwriter or an extra team of support staff. So most of the sort of efficiency gains claimed as part of an acquisition are not really what they're going for most yeah. of the time. Well, it was it's it's um pretty prominent as well because in the Aon attempt to buy Willis. Greg Case made a lot of noise about here's all the efficiency gains we'll deliver to clients as a, and I think everyone kind of went, well, we're, so we're the, not entirely convinced by this. Well, this was the really interesting thing because that that was part of it, but actually, I think the headline of a lot of the publicity that went out about that merger was around innovation. Yeah, and they were they, there was this this narrative painted as part of it, which was along the lines of, I'm. Um, Clients are changing at a faster rate than ever before. True. Mm-hmm. Absolutely the case. The industry is struggling to keep up with their needs. Yeah, absolutely with you. Uh, the only way that we're going to be able to innovate enough to keep up with their needs is if we stick the two of the biggest players in the industry together. Um, and I think that's where they fell down a bit with the you know, the US regulators in terms of yeah. competition authority because actually reducing the amount of competition in the market is rarely seen to give rise to greater innovation. Normally, more competition enables people to to do that. So it was a slightly challenging argument to swallow, I think, uh, at the time. No, I think that's right. I think the other thing that um, you see underlying a lot of this activity, and the reason it sort of continues at pace, is there's a deep sense of entrepreneurialism within this sector, right? People who you're seeing the current versions of, again, our our memory doesn't go back far enough to show the early days of this, but the current iterations of McGill and sort of people who had built big careers um, at some of the bigger brokers then spinning out, creating their own business, building that up. In a number of years, it wouldn't be a shock wouldn't if McGill then gets acquired by another bigger broking firm. You saw it with um, Capsicum, with Graham Chilton, 
going away, setting up a, a different broking house, kind of as an extension. Mm-hmm. Was it of JLT? Um, or was it, a, no, of Gallagher, Gallagher. Yeah, of Gallagher, Gallagher. extension yeah. of Gallagher, sort of partnered with them, mm-hmm. ran that whole business and then rebought by Gallagher. And, and so you're seeing this sort of activity happen. And, and the same thing with, with Tiger now, Rod, who had come from a Benfield background, set up Tiger Risk, just now acquired or merged with Howden. Um, he's still there leading that, the Howden re sort of division now, but it wouldn't be a shock for a number of people who've been remunerated quite well to then be like, well, we're going to go do our own thing and sort of the cycle repeats itself. Mm. You've seen it on the underwriting side as well, interestingly, where so the Berkshire Hathaway trans redeal, I think it wasn't mentioned much in the coverage at the time. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, good idea. But um, if you look back, actually, to sort of about five years ago, I Genry and Transry actually set up a partnership back then where Transry was effectively the underwriting manager for all of Genry's broked business because mm. Genry historically direct only reinsurer doesn't use brokers. I they set up an agreement where they basically provided Transry with Genry capacity, and Transry dealt with all the broked business. So it was sort of only the next step in a, a partnership that almost seemed mm. planned all along yeah. to then actually go and acquire Alahani and get Transry as part of that deal. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, as you say, that a lot of dancing personalities that evolve into combining organizations. One of, one of the other things that you mentioned uh, in passing was sort of uh, you have at, at the time, one of the largest syndicates, which was Catlin Syndicate 2003, <laughs> um, who then was bought by XL, who then subsequently bought by AxXL. One of, one of my favorite things in this sort of melting pot of mergers and acquisitions that's always happening is people who are at one company, they get acquired, they then leave that company. And then that their new company gets acquired by that same company. <laughs> and I, I, does knew, happen a lot. I knew someone at Aon who had who had been employed by Aon like six different times. Like they're employed by this mm. company who then Aon bought. And they left and went somewhere else. And then Aon bought that company. And they they just they just and I remember they were in the they were in the US and they were kind of like, I'm just gonna stay here. Now there's no point in me like, <laughs> because this this sort of thing can happen where yeah. you go, back to my old job. <laughs> kind of thing um which is quite an entertaining part of it as well when you sort of see the sort of quirks of of our industry playing out like that that's so true i, I wanted to go back as well and touch a bit on some of the deal rationale because we, we talked about mm. it's probably not cost and it's probably not innovation most of the time we have seen some interesting innovation deals so on buying cover wallet for example sure. or more on the insurance side again arguably howden tiger for some of the tiger tech stuff they were yeah. doing like tiger eye and so on yeah i think there'll be some some bigger tech plays there for sure and the, so we do see bits of you know new innovation kind of uh, plays but a lot of the time it is pure growth and market share driven some commentators may say ego driven as well uh, it's hard not to get caught up in the excitement of mergers and merger wars especially when you know a competitor makes a big acquisition it feels like there's pressure from the street to respond by buying someone yourself as well. Well, it's not always proven to be the best uh, response. Um, but one that's been probably the most interesting in the past three or four years has been the perceived lack of choice within the reinsurance broking environment mm-hmm. and you know, really spurred on by the Aon Willis attempted merger, uh, seeing, I won't name all of them, but you know, the huge investment suddenly in 
the Locktons, the the Howdens, and and so on, all all, all re- reignited in their energy Gallagher as well at the time to go and build big reinsurance brokers because there was a perceived gap in the market, and you saw, interestingly, Acrosure by Beach, for example, begin to start to leverage their insurance uh, relationships and and weight as a means of you know saying well we we could tap into the vertical here as well and and use that again downstream to access more reinsurance business makes sense arguably howden tiger really similar mm-hmm. thing right you know howden re was relatively small compared to the bigger players so by the biggest who isn't one of the big three and then you're launched up in terms of scale and you've very quickly gained credible capabilities which give you a distribution to access yeah. that profitable reinsurance business up, up the street and i think reinsurance continues to be seen as a more profitable breaking business because of the deal size because of the legacy model for doing commission because of especially with things like superseed coming in the increasingly lower cost at which you can service reinsurance business it's a very high margin space yeah i i remember something when i when i was at aon um and this is this is probably decade old sort of information um but there was something where the the Aon Benfield unit, the reinsurance unit at the time of following that merger, um, made as much profit as the rest of Aon. Like it was a, a tenth of the size. But the Mart, it's such a different business, and so so I think mm. you're exactly right. Where you can sort of run a traditional insurance business and sort of scrape revenue from all volume, volume deal, uh, volume focused deal making. But the reinsurance side is much more lucrative. And I think there's a huge opportunity to sort of add that as an addition to traditional broking house, an Acrisure, um, um, a Howden who's sort of built a big insurance brand that would benefit quite a lot from that reinsurance space. Um, so I, I think there's certainly a bit of that happening, but it's not without its challenges. And I think m- mega mergers are not. These things are can be very, very difficult. Everything from integrating sort of information and technology to culture, you know. But how do you think about the biggest risks of these sorts of things? Like what is, even if you're buying a mid-tier, you know, geography play, like how do you, how would you begin to assess and think about the various risks that are exposed to the, to the buyer? Yeah, so it's a... I'll, I'll try and talk about it from both broker and underwriter perspectives simultaneously. But typically, acquisitions into a space mean new market entrance, which mean new pressure for growth and new pressure for results within that particular market. So let's say it's reinsurance breaking, or let's say it's mid-market property insurance business, whatever it is, I you're going to drive competitive pressure in that space. And normally... In most other industries, the result of that would be pressure on prices. In broking, that doesn't seem to happen yet. To some extent, maybe we're starting to see more generous rebates being offered by incoming brokers. And then it's a really difficult question for the uh, the brokers whether they want to match that offer that's coming in from smaller brokers or lose the business or stick to their original prices near enough on and, and hope they still win these RFPs because of their clout and, and scale and leverage and so on. 
Similarly, on the underwriting side, you know, new entrants or entrants that have had loads of capital bumped into them and have been told to hit these growth targets have the effect of potentially driving down prices uh, as competition rises. And therefore, it becomes a question for everybody else um, as to whether they want to stay on that business or whether they think that they have the the brand strength and the clout to still be a crucial partner to to the client in that scenario. So in, in every case, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is going to be the excitement from new entrants in an incredibly cash-rich and optimistic acquisition environment will put pricing pressure on everybody involved, the incomers and the incumbents. And because of that, that could put pressure on the sustainability of all of those players' mm. books going forwards and on their operations and on the way they do business, which is exciting, actually, as well as being a challenge because then people turn to operations and they turn to innovation and ways of being able to service the new pressure where historically, arguably, there hasn't been enough pressure to force people to look seriously at alternative ways of doing things to the way they've always done things. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a, real big, there's a really big opportunity um, for those smaller brokers. And, and you wrote a, an article about this a, a long time ago now. Um, but this idea that previously the ability to provide sort of technical innovation for clients was reserved only for the biggest firms who could afford tens of millions, if not more, every year, building out solutions to help clients leverage analytics to help their clients assess. So in an RFP, they could bring so much more to the table than any of those smaller competitors could. I think you're seeing this democratization of access to technology moving downstream where not only companies like ours, but others who are making it easier to build back office tools or pricing tools or similar, where what was one say, well, only Munich or Swiss or only energy mm -hmm. could ever support me here. Yeah. That's no longer becoming the case. So I think to your point, your, your point around um, pricing pressure, I think that will ramp up because those smaller firms won't have the, the sort of cost base that they're sort of defending and they could go in going, well, we could take 4%, 5%, 10% off these prices and still make the margins that we need. And I think you could really see an, uh, an acceleration into that. So I think that's a really interesting space for us to watch over the sort of next five to 10 years. Um, the other thing that they touch on a little bit, um, and I think I'm looking at this much more from a broking hat, but I'd be interested to see if you see this from an underwriting side, is the importance of culture in in these conversations. And I think culture from a reinsurance broking firm perspective, I think is a little bit different than sort of how we sort of traditionally frame culture around just DNI and those sorts of things similarly, but more around entrepreneurialism and autonomy and, you know, are those, are those teams and those divisions and those geographies empowered to sort of go and drum up business and be rewarded for it? Or is it you're part of the system now and here's the playbook and like they don't get so i think some of the times mergers work really well is when firms are very aligned with how they run their businesses and where they break is when you sort of try to force these things together which are fundamentally different and the personalities within those organizations don't really match and this is one of the areas i think that's most commented on in general sort of merger and acquisition theory as the treatment of an acquisition and the culture in particular 
is so often misaligned with the motive for the acquisition originally. So, for example, companies that are acquired because of their distinctive uh, go-to-market or culture or autonomy or way of doing things that enables them to command a premium price or operate at a much lower margin are the first to be destroyed as soon as these companies are acquired because, oh, acquisition mode, we should strip away everything and convert them to our way of doing things. When the the advice would usually be to let those businesses run at arm's length and if anything, try and encourage your own business to follow them. Mm. Um, And it often happens the other way around as well, where (laughs) you keep at arm's length and let carry on businesses that aren't adding any of those values. Very, very easy to confuse. What type of acquisition is this that you're going for? Did you want... (laughs) them because of who they are and, and and a lot of people would argue that some of the big underwriting ones that we've earlier mentioned have had this issue where you know i mean i mean that axa excel is a, a really topical one back at the time because you saw the acquisition by a very cautious big french insurer that likes to post very stable and predictable returns and steady growth of a categorically volatile underwriting business that focuses on specialty classes and heavily reinsurance classes and then upon realizing that go ah maybe we didn't want that after all yeah and you know then had to set about handling that but also in terms of managing um the the way the businesses were run massively different cultures between uh, as you said what was effectively the legacy Catlin team with a layer of legacy Excel on top of it. I then being met with a a different language and a different culture with a French operating uh, model, I guess, that was quite different. Yeah. And and I think there have been a lot of observations as uh, other companies like Convex sprang up mm-hmm. that would point, as you said, to culture as one of the main reasons why people were making moves and looking to do things differently because they felt like, their old company wasn't going to be the same after an acquisition. Yeah. I, and I, and I, I pick on that example, but it's the same you know, yeah. across so many. We saw a lot of uh, underwriting businesses acquired by large Japanese businesses, mm-hmm. for example, that had a similar confusion then about what their culture would be going, going forward. So I remember one, one such syndicate talking about how when they found out that the, the new owners were in town, they had to quickly hide all the beers, yeah. <laughs> tidy up the underwriting boxes and make sure that you know everything was, was good and that everybody was staying on the box yeah. at the right time and, and so on. I think, I think the ambition to let companies run at an arm's length and do what they're doing well and do what, if, if you buy them for that reason, that's making them successful. I think I... I I'm aligned with that ambition. And I think a lot of companies are try to make that work, but don't have the existing framework to do that well. Like you need to have a Berkshire style model, or as you've mentioned, some of these Japanese conglomerate style model where the parent company is very comfortable running dozens of brands who, you know, do this, this very differently. Um, But what often happens is even if they try that, it doesn't take very long for in an executive meeting for them to talk about strategy and then be like, well, we just need to get the data together in the same way. And then they sort of, let's put them on the same system. And and then bit by bit, you're sort of forcing the smaller part of the business unit to sort of follow the rules of the bigger business unit so that somewhere in a management meeting, they have sort of aligned and consolidated and reconciled data. And 
And that's kind of where it begins. So even if the ambition is to say, we're going to let them run and do their own thing and we think they're great, I think that the time is already ticking on, yeah. on that blowing up. It's, it's interesting. And I think you remind me of a couple of interesting things. One on the theoretical side, which is around conglomerates in general, and this kind of weird argument that conglomerates are better diversified and therefore should bring you better returns if you're you know investing in an insurance company why not invest in Berkshire because or Markel because or you know somebody that's got a range of businesses because they're better protected and there's a a fallacy there it's argued because shareholders can diversify their own portfolios just by lots of different companies you, you know you don't have to <laughs> there's another way to do this. there's another way to achieve diversification but you, you, I guess you can see maybe some synergies if those businesses are, are strategically assembled and perhaps in the sense that you're willing to delegate to you know a somebody as as wise as the i've forgotten his nickname but i whatever warren buffett's funny nickname is i don't know it's, it's like the the something of oh, omaha the, the uh, i can't remember what the the Anyway. The Oracle of Omaha? Oracle of Omaha, that, maybe. That's, that's a good one, if not. Again, thanks for shouting into your headphones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you, you know, you're willing to delegate yeah. portfolio diversification to him. So that's one interesting thing on the conglomerate side of things. What's also interesting and what we haven't mentioned on the insurance, reinsurance, mergers and acquisition side is that there is an interesting cost saving, very appropriate to this cod, this podcast, not this cod past. <laughs> so a spoonerism for you. Um, where basically... I, Acquired entities will often, when you were talking about rolling up data, acquired entities will often end up being brought under the umbrella of the larger group's reinsurance buying strategy, yeah. which is super interesting because whereas then the market, so the reinsurance market as a whole, used to have two customers, they now have one where they might have had differential rates or you know commission processes or rebates as brokers or different ways of doing business with different partners before Actually, suddenly, when that becomes one deal, usually if that buyer has any negotiating power, they're going to push towards the terms of the one that had the preferred terms. So often, actually, the reinsurance market and, and size and profitability as a whole loses out during one of these big seedant-to-seedant mergers or acquisitions because they're probably going to spend less on reinsurance afterwards. Yeah. Otherwise, they failed on <laughs> quite a big synergy opportunity yeah. or they realize that they bought something they shouldn't have and they buy way more reinsurance than they used to <laughs> can also happen this is a disaster i know we'll buy more reinsurance to save yeah. us no it's, it's a really good point um and and this is where these sort of knock-on effects sort of always emerge and and then with that the sort of urgency for the big brokers the urgency for the big reinsurers to win that deal if you see a mega merger within the seedings and in the insurance sector like there's a real need for like the bro the, the sort of rfp process becomes very aggressive because it's one fewer client and that deal is now bigger yeah. and it you know it's it's a game of, of making sure you've got all the big accounts and potentially your your critical relationships don't matter anymore as well yep which is quite interesting too well, this is another one we when we talk about the broking side a lot of these relationships are very very long standing and if you've built you know 15 or 20 year relationship with the leadership or the family that owns that insurance company and they then get bought by a much more sort of ruthless conglomerate who doesn't really care that you're broker and you go have the, you know kids are married or whatever it might be <laughs> it's like 
that the sort of crux and the sort of critical points of that relationship sometimes are just ignored now because that new parent doesn't really care about that. Mm-hmm. So you're right, some of those things erode as well. And and we diverged, I guess, quite a lot from the initial question, which was or one of the initial questions, which is what are the risks of, of yeah. these mergers? We have to talk a bit about systems. Mm-hmm. Um, your your earlier point around Aon, for example, having emerged from like 170 different yeah. companies. Do they now have 170 different systems? Yeah. They don't. I don't think. I don't know. I haven't counted them. <laughs> I, and, and, and again, actually, I think that there's some really good case studies there of getting people onto a really good system mm-hmm. and onboarding. But every company, when they go through an acquisition and the two previous companies have different ways of doing things, whether that's a system of record, whether that's claim systems, whether that's technical accounting, whatever it might be, I, in each case, you have to choose, right, are we going to go with A, with B, with some hybrid, keep both, or scrap both, and C is now the way forwards. And what I find fascinating is how exhausting this must be for ops and IT teams in our industry, because uh, the mergers and acquisition space is so hot that by the time they've just finished painting the Golden Gate Bridge and you know, bringing together all of Legacy X's systems onto Legacy Y, they get bought again. Yeah. Right? And it's just a constant process of like, oh, we just got everybody onto that system and now we've been told that everyone's going to move onto this system instead. Mm-hmm. Two years of our entire team's life wasted. <laughs> In, in in the systems piece in our industry, the way technology has always been deployed is is you have most things sit on prem or, or built in house or built in house, yeah. and so you might have it where they all have the same system. Oh, but that team's using like version two, and those those teams using like version one point seven, and those teams using version three, and so those actually don't map yeah. as easily. And and what you can sometimes see is certain entities who buy a lot of people just sort of let that all carry on as is. Mm. And then one company buys the other and realizes they've now inherited like 14 different systems yeah. with that one acquisition yeah. <laughs> and the need to sort of reconcile this stuff. And um, one of the things that you'll see a lot in our industry, especially with the data, trying to get that all aligned and mapped out to see where the relationships all sit is the the complexity of the industry's sort of company hierarchies and how entities actually work. So we talk about like Munichery and Swissery and Renry. Like all of those companies have numerous subsidiaries and numerous divisions where it's like, oh, the Bermuda team is technically called this and there's all these legal names. But when you go into these various systems, depending on how big the company might be, they might only trade with Swiss Swissery one time. So they might happen just happen to have it say this. Mm-hmm. But the new bigger company can't do it that way or or they manage how they treat other counterparties very differently so it's it begins to get very very messy very very quickly this is there's a reason these things take multiple years to sort of unpack um so i think a lot of the challenges with a big merger especially the bigger they get is we'll know how we've landed in like a three-year window because it's you're not going to get to a, a position of a starting point until that point until then i think it's, it's also especially interesting on a an outwards reinsurance side where most companies will have sort of counterparty exposure limits where they don't want to have more than X of their coverage provided by a single counterparty. Mm. And it's like, oh no, (laughs) A has just bought B and we buy significant amounts of reinsurance from both of them. 
have we gone over the 20% max we set ourselves? Yeah. Uh, nobody knows, actually, because we have to manually go into every single, you know, like report that each broker on each placement prepared and look at how much of that deal in what currency was done with <laughs> reinsurer A and with reinsurer B and then add it all up in a spreadsheet that we made ourselves. I would love to see the aggregate industry cost for that, <laughs> right? So AXA buys XL Catlin. Yeah. Like how many thousands of man hours around the world were spent doing that exact Just trying exercise? To work out how much? Yeah, I'm going no. okay. Hang on a second. <laughs> so how much do we do now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just chaos. Oh, and the same for I remember you know trying to track this. I have various underwriting entities and at Lloyd's as well, but broker consolidation as well. It was like we will keep our, our sort of happy happiness here if you know the total share of our business brought to us by the top three is less than 30%. Yeah. And then something changes like, okay, I, well, nothing we can do about it. So we'll, we'll change the rag rating to be, if it goes above 40%, we'll be upset. It's gone above 40, uh, it's gone above 50%. Oh, and then just carries on. It's like, we're now entirely dependent on three brokers <laughs> or, <laughs> or similar yeah. or, or yeah. two in some cases. Yeah. Um, if the Oracle of Omaha doesn't perform, our entire book collapses. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, everything you need to know so go forth and buy companies <laughs> or, or don't or don't don't take our advice for it get bought instead <laughs> <laughs> um but I, th I think this is a really really interesting one i think we'll we'll certainly touch on future m a because our industry is it's rife with it we'll have another one with it by the end of the year i'm sure um but I think this is an interesting topic that warrants us tackling other angles from as well in future podcasts. So watch out for M&A of the week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, everyone, and look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Stay tuned. See you next time.